So hello and welcome to the next edition of Fridays with Fintelect. My name is Shirish Pathak. I head Fintelect Advisory Services. And for those of you who don't know what we do, we are focused on research, training, and advisory in anti-money laundering and countering terrorist financing. My guest today is Leah Shetrit, who is a senior advisor for crypto policy and regulation at Elliptic and an international strategic advisor for security, financial integrity, and inclusion. For the past 15 years, Liat has led global capacity building and technical assistance programs on AML, CFT, financial inclusion, and countering violent extremism. She has formerly worked at the Egmont Group of FIUs, Citigroup, the Global Center on Cooperative Security, and the US House of Representatives Committee for Homeland Security. Liat, it's a pleasure to have you with us today and welcome to the show. Thank you, Shirish, and thank you to Fintelect for having me. I appreciate uh, everyone tuning in today. Thank you. Great. So, let jumping straight into the questions. Uh, you know, let me pose the first one to you. Uh, so, cryptocurrencies and blockchain are generally mentioned in the same breath in conversations, especially though, you know, uh, by those who are not very well initiated in the subject. Uh, so, just for the benefit of listeners who may not be too familiar with the terms and the differences, can you briefly outline what each of these terms refers to and maybe a quick wrap on recent trends around each? Sure. Um, sure. Thank you. Yeah. So, so I think what's really important to, to think about before we jump into the definitions is kind of what is money and how we perceive money and what that is. Is it tangible? Is it digital? What is money generally? And so when we think of our traditional U.S. or Canadian dollars, the euro, the sterling, the Indian rupee, the Chinese yuan, um, that's kind of what we would call fiat money. So legal tender that's backed by a central government. It's, a ve it's very clear who issues it. It's very clear who owns it. You've got an ownership structure. None of that is anonymous, right? Um, uh, including, by the way, um, electronic payments. So the value corresponds one-to-one -to, -one to the value of the currency in which you purchase it. Now, cryptocurrencies or crypto assets or virtual assets, all of these are terms that depend on which organizations you read from. Uh, you'll find that they're often interchanged with each other, generally mean the same thing. It's a secure digital representation of value or contractual rights. So it's essentially having the rights to a particular virtual asset. And it uses what's called distributed ledger technology, which is a system like a record keeper that essentially records a transaction of assets in multiple places at the same time. And so crypto assets can be stored, traded, or transferred electronically. And what's unique about them is that they're secured using cryptography. And cryptography is essentially a method of protecting information and communications that uses a lot of codes and a lot of really complex um, uh, uh, kind of information that's intended to avoid anybody just being able to guess your um, your crypto keys and so essentially if you think about it the, the prefix crypt actually means hidden or vault so it's a, it's a bit of you know all of your value is stored in this vault and so examples of cryptocurrencies would be bitcoin or alternative coins um, you may have heard of altcoins which is short for alternative coins such as ether xrp and litecoin this whole house of or entire eco chamber 
of uh, cryptocurrencies is huge. There's over 2,000, 3,000 of these, and, and you know they sort of morph every day with, with Bitcoin kind of being the, the one that was um, uh, most well-known in the market 10 years ago um, and, and also has the highest market cap if you look at it. And very briefly on blockchain, so blockchain is very separate from crypto in a sense because it's the underlying record-keeping technology which um, stores the data and blocks that are, that are physically chained to each other, by physically I mean by code, and maintained across several, several computers that are linked into one network. And so what's really important to remember is that this blockchain technology that underlies the payments essentially um, assures data integrity and data validity and cannot be changed. And it's this blockchain technology that we're seeing pop up across different industries. You're seeing it in real estate to maybe secure data related to land deeds. You're seeing it appear in different medical record keeping. Um, any, any place that we really require um, secure uh, data and um, an inability to change data um, can make use of blockchain technology. And just one other um, point that I would make is that within this ecosystem of crypto, you've also got the crypto asset exchanges. Crypto asset exchanges are essentially the business platforms that really offer crypto asset exchange services. So think about it like a local Forex where you would come in and swap either your cash or your crypto. Um, so you would do um, uh, not just currency swaps, but also be able, be able to onload from your cash, from your bank account onto crypto. And, and this is usually the first place that, um, for example, newbies to, to Bitcoin would find you know, a crypto exchange that they perceive to be trustworthy, that is you know, uh, an institution that they would uh, want to open up an account in, and that's where people would, would initially hold their crypto. I can talk about this for a very long time, so I'll just All stop right. there. <laughs> Happy to. <laughs> sure. So I think I think that's a really good primer uh, on uh, you know crypto and blockchain. Uh, so moving on, uh, you know, uh, everyone's speaking about the pandemic and COVID nineteen. So uh, is there any shift in trends that you have seen as a result of the pandemic uh, in the way cryptocurrencies are being used to launder money? And uh, is there anything significantly different uh, that is happening? Uh, and what are the risks to banks in terms of having to adapt to ensure that they can still raise suspicious transaction alerts on this? Yeah, I mean, first of all, with regards to the pandemic, I really wish everybody health and safety and, and I hope everyone stays well. Um, I think what's been unique about this COVID-19 pandemic is that it's really fast-tracked a lot of processes that we've seen in place, for example, digitization projects that are looking to, to um, uh, quickly, kind of rapidly uh, create contactless payment methods. Uh, you're seeing an uptick around the world. There's particularly a demand for cryptocurrencies in certain countries um, as a result of COVID-19. You know, you're seeing a lot more uh, Bitcoin kind of peer-to-peer -peer trading in places like Argentina or, or Chile, Venezuela, and Morocco. So a lot of places that really are looking to stabilize economic activity where there's a little bit of upheaval. Um, so I would say that the effects of the virus have not entirely been kind of negative, right? There's been a lot of opportunities that, that are being uh, seen as a result of this. For example, an uptick in hiring and crypto exchanges that are seeing this big flurry of activity. But when it comes specifically to the money laundering risks, um, you know, we, we are seeing uh, a misuse of crypto as in many other industries that relate to, for example, ransomware or um, uh, scams that are associated with different 
different payments. Um, uh, and, and one unique uh, issue that's come up, I think it started well before the pandemic, but has increased right now, is the idea of um, purchasing Know Your Customer KYC kits identity kits on the dark market that you can then sort of use to um, establish maybe a illicit version of a digital identity. And I think banks are really now at this crossroads about needing to grapple with how do they do KYC? How do they conduct due diligence on customers when so much of it is now shifted online? It's raising a lot of issues around authentication of documents, vetting of identities. Um, you know, the Financial Action Task Force has come out with guidance on this. So I think it's really important for banks to consider what are they doing with regards to, to digitization efforts of their KYC procedures, particularly around their high-risk customers. Um, that's really important. Regulators around the world have been very clear in communications. They're issuing, if, if you have a look at, at different jurisdictions in different regions, it's really key to see that regulators are not quiet about the pandemic. They're communicating what the specific trends and typologies are for individual countries and also regions. Um, and then in the same sort of breath, they're also indicating uh, a lot of what their expectations are from reporting entities, including banks. Specifically, when it comes to suspicious activity reports, um, you know, the US, Canada, Australia, um, many, many of the larger kind of regulatory bodies have come out to say that they have full expectation that banks will continue to raise quality, timely SARS. And that poses a challenge for many banks who've been scrambling to shift to a work from home model, um, assuring um, you know, security against cyber criminal activity um, and assuring that their systems are in place. Um, regulators are also demonstrating that they're quite reasonable. Um, they, they do have an option to submit um, a proactive declaration of non-compliance. And I think when it comes to things like your ability as a financial institution and bank to handle cryptocurrencies, maybe that's not something that was top of your mind before a pandemic, but now when so much activity and flurry has shifted entirely online, um, this would be a good time to look at what kind of risk exposure comes into your bank. Um, and so, you know, banks have kind of both direct and indirect risks. And I can talk about this a little bit later if you like, but um, sure. definitely, um, definitely SARS should continue to be filed. Um, and particularly there's an expectation that SARS on virtual assets specifically should be coming up at an increased rate. So banks should really be aware of what they're doing to achieve that. Right. So, um, uh, Elliot, uh, blockchain has actually been spoken uh, about for a few years now as a methodology to counter uh, money laundering. And uh, are there any specific use cases uh, that you think have been successful globally? And, uh, you know, can it be used for a specific risk? So if you look at trade-based money laundering, for example, uh, is, is there a case there? Yeah, so, so blockchain, as you know, I mentioned earlier, has so many different use cases. And I think what's, what's very exciting is to see the, the huge experimentation and piloting that's going on globally by innovators and everywhere and anywhere, right? So blockchain knows no global boundaries. And I think it, it really is a, an, an enabler, an economic enabler of sorts that um, can allow participation in, in, um, in, in economic activity. 
So tr when it comes to trade-based money laundering, I think that's a really good use case to look at because, you know, not only is it one of the primary means that criminal organizations now use to launder illicit proceeds, um, I think there's an element of really needing to address the 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 issue, the, the activities that criminal enterprises really um, uh, uh, make use of when it comes to trade-based money laundering. And, and you know, we, we're used to kind of thinking about over-invoicing, under-invoicing, um, multiple invoicing of goods and services. And I think that um, what we've been seeing is that there's actually an increase in TBML that's quite, you know, ironically maybe, or uh, a funny moment due to the improved compliance because there's been this ability to better regulate um, regula um, requirements around AML and CFT regulations. And so in fact, we're seeing a shift. Uh, it's kind of like that balloon squeeze where all of a sudden, you know, trade-based money laundering is seeing an increase because compliance structures are working so well on other sides. Um, so what I'm seeing by way of trend is that um, both public and private sectors are experimenting and investigating a wide range of blockchain type tools to help combat trade-based money laundering. So um, there's projects that really look at um, the entire supply chain and the visibility and integrity of that supply chain that's happening both at a regulatory agency level and also with market participants who are looking to just assure that their own companies are not misused, shipping companies, cargo companies. Um, uh, there's some banks who are really piloting different stages of digitizing and automating its document review processes. You know, we talked about how blockchain can be used really to assess and, and, find, and, and assure the integrity of procedures, um, uh, making sure that documents are not fraudulent and using it in trade transactions. Um, so what I would just note about that is that, yes, there's a lot of activity, but it's also very new. And, um, you know, for the kind of immediate future, Financial institutions um, don't necessarily aren't, aren't necessarily rushing into adopting a variety of tools to kind of combat um, every specific type of typology. And TBML is also, you know, still remains very specific of a niche to address, but is also highly vulnerable by money launderers um, and really susceptible to exploitations. So I think there's a bit. If I were to draw a higher trend from all that, I would say that there's a bit of a dissonance between the tech industry boom that's running ahead with applying blockchain technologies and biometric uh, and, and KYC, digital KYCs, and then maybe governments and, and, and a few private sector or a few banks that are needing to quickly, quickly, quickly adapt to all of this change and maybe their systems aren't quite there. So I think we're a bit off of mainstreaming kind of the tech solutions for things like trade-based money laundering, but we really should be doing more of that would be my bottom line. Right. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Liet. So, uh, you know, Liet, many banks assume that, uh, you know, uh, they're immune to crypto risks just because their country doesn't allow it uh, or, you know, their customers do not declare it. So is this a fair assumption? And do you think that customers are actually able to move funds into and out of cryptocurrencies easily without the bank even knowing about it? Uh, and thereby, you know, it causes intermingling of uh, fiat currency and virtual currency. And if so, what should banks be doing to identify such transactions uh, or customers, uh, you know, from the transaction monitoring point of view? 
Yeah, that's a packed question. There's a lot of different themes in there. Um, uh, very important question, though, so I'll try to address a lot of it. Um, the short answer would be, I don't think it's a fair assumption, and I don't think that banks are immune, even if um, cryptocurrencies, crypto assets are banned in a particular country. And I think we already have some, some countries that have banned crypto in which we've seen we've seen how this is playing out um, you know without i don't want to be naming and shaming any country any country is open to to do its own business as it sees but some countries that have banned crypto what we've seen is that the operations will continue but the headquarters might move to a different country or we're seeing um sort of you know regulatory arbitrage where the money is still moving cross-border but maybe some services are offered in others and not primarily in that and in, in that other banned country and so i i think Banning something doesn't um, doesn't make a country immune, and it certainly doesn't reduce the risk. I think what um, what banks should really be thinking about is: um, Am I exposed to risk? Where am I exposed to risk, and how do I mitigate it? And assuming that a country's banned it, and or that your bank's policy opposes crypto altogether, doesn't mean that the risk isn't there for you because the customer's position doesn't necessarily align with a bank's position. So for example, I could be banking with a bank that has banned crypto, but I haven't banned crypto and I'm certainly using my bank account to purchase fiat or to, to, to use fiat to purchase crypto and vice versa. In fact, um, you know, the data that, that we've collected demonstrates that the flow between banks, financial institutions, traditional kind of banks, and crypto is 500 billion a year. So $500 billion are moving between crypto and cash. I would ask any bank, you know, how much of that is moving through your bank and what are you doing to, to address that risk? And I would call that um, indirect risk. It's not, it's not risk that the bank actively has because they're not banking crypto, they're not issuing crypto, but it is still indirect risk to that bank. And the first step would be basically the same compliance tools that we all know and are familiar with, you know, your risk assessment. Look at the risk assessment for the bank. Are you even assessing crypto risks generally, even if it's banned? Because if you have a customer base, um, uh, you know, maybe your customers are mining crypto. Maybe your customers are, are using it as an investment and, and you wouldn't know about it. Um, some ways to, to, you know, some banks, what, what they're doing is using keyword identifiers. So they'll look at their transactions and screen for words like Bitcoin. They'll screen for words um, like, um, uh, you know, um, uh, crypto. And, and, and while that's a good start, uh, it's not necessarily a comprehensive way. As we discussed, there's, you know, loads of different crypto assets. Um, so I think banks should really be thinking about how do I address this indirect risk, starting with the risk assessment, making sure that they're aware of their customer base, having declarations in place, um, and, and also actively secure, um, uh, conducting transaction monitoring, uh, for crypto using unique identifiers. Obviously, there are software solutions that can help do that. Um, and obviously, there are other ways that um, uh, you, you can address this by updating your policies and procedures, looking at your AML framework and assuring that it's aligned also with global standards around virtual asset service providers and, and virtual assets generally. Um, I mean, this is a whole other topic, but I wouldn't assume at all that a bank is immune just because a country and or an institution has banned it. Um, and I think we have plenty of countries that have tried to, uh, but that hasn't really gotten them very far. 
I, one last point that I think is important on this is that sometimes a country has banned it only to allow the central bank thinking time to develop their own <laughs> central bank digital currencies. And I think it's been interesting to see these cases where some countries would come out with, you know, with full declarations against crypto. At that same time, they've bought their central bank some time to rejuvenate, reinvigorate its systems and think about you know, issuing its own central bank digital currency. And then it gets overturned in the country and it's legal again. And then the central bank is issuing statements that they are now coming out with central bank digital currencies. So I think, I think banning is also used as planning. And that's even a rhyme, which I'm very happy about making that up right now. But it's, I, I mean, I think that bans should be looked at with a grain of salt, in my view. All right, excellent. Uh, so banning to aid planning. Uh, so taking <laughs> off uh, from that, so Riet, you have a lot of experience in communicating with regulators and policymakers around the world. So, you know, taking off from what you just said uh, uh, right now. So what is your opinion, uh, you know, on how the use and let's say pervasiveness of crypto will evolve, uh, bearing in mind that, you know, regulators around the world, as you said, seem divided on whether to allow, disallow or, you know, launch their own digital currencies. Uh, and are these currencies really going to replace, um, you know, uh, the investment in crypto by citizens, although it's maybe illegal, or do you see this uh, sort of coexisting? Yeah, um, thank you for that. You know, I've spent a lot of years, many, many years dealing with regulators and, and policymakers in international and, and, and national jurisdictions. And I think there's a few really important things going on right now by way of trends. I mean, if you were to look at the numbers, 80% um, of central banks right now are at some phase of experimenting with, developing, thinking about, observing, or maybe have even launched a central bank digital currency. Um, that's a big number, and, and, and that's obviously you know, pointing towards where we're going. My opinion is that there's no going back on this. You either innovate or your currency you know, goes out of business. And I think that's been part of the scramble that we've maybe been seeing in the US as a result of some of the digital dollar projects. And um, there's a lot of impetus in the market. You know, we can't ignore Facebook's Libra, which is, you know, a blockchain ecosystem and the Libra payments that are going to be um, uh, uh, game changing if they sort of continue in, in terms of potential adoption and reach globally. Um, I think that the Financial Action Task Force, which again is the global watchdog and, and sort of um, norm setter, standard setter on anti-money laundering, counterterrorism finance, in June 2019 had passed um, uh, or sort of um, uh, issued a uh, comprehensive guidance for regulators across all jurisdictions in terms of how they should be handling cryptocurrencies and virtual assets. And the deadline for implementation is June 2020. So all countries in the world, whether they like it or not, more or less, should be um, uh, implementing some form of regulatory oversight uh, around the cryptocurrency issues and around um, how it is that they're approaching these, um, uh, these topics. So they really have been, there's a lot of activity this past year where countries have been forced to think about, you know, what is our stance on this? How are we dealing with crypto? How are we dealing with our own central bank digital currencies? And I think this this push of activity is what we've been seeing this year. And so if you were to look at a map of the world maybe a year and a half ago, you would see a few countries here and there lit up in green to say, you know, yes, we've been um, thinking about regulatory frameworks, 
But after June 2020, it would be my expectation that many, many, many more regulators have been, th have been already you know, thinking about this. And so I think when it comes to coexistence, I think every country will do what's good for its own currencies. Obviously, you know, um, uh, China's been piloting very openly in four different provinces, its own central bank digital currency, um, including, by the way, um, uh, involved in that experiment are major US companies like McDonald's, Subway, and Starbucks. And, and, and that is creating um, an economic sort of competition because you know we all know the 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 sort of the chinese links in other continents for example in africa and and you see sort of the digitization crossing the globe uh, big time so it's a bit of an economic arms race if you will um and i think if you if if countries don't and regulators don't throw their hat in the ring then they might be in a position of of losing out on kind of the, the strong economic position that they could be in Right. Uh, so, Liet, uh, you know, one, one last point I thought we should touch on, uh, you know, coming to the whole investigation and LEA side. So, in your view, uh, you know, do the LEAs, that is the law enforcement agencies, the tax authorities, the judiciary, uh, do you think they have the required understanding of how crimes are committed using cryptocurrencies? Uh, and if not, uh, you know, how would you suggest that they prepare uh, to investigate such cases, you know, effectively? Yeah, I'm, of course, it varies jurisdiction to jurisdiction. You see some that might be much more sophisticated on these topics and others that are just beginning and others that don't uh, even want to know. And that's, you know, every jurisdiction is, is on their own path. Um, the issue is, do we address the trends on the ground or do we not? Um, <laughs> and so I think in this regard, when it comes to taxation authorities, you know, um, they sort of have an obligation across the board in terms of their own mandate to um, to assure that tax payments are are happening on whichever assets people are using and however they're being used, um, so I think or misused by the way. So I think it's very important for tax authorities to to understand typologies and take the measures around fraud, corruption, um, uh, tax fraud issues, and and really understand how those typologies work specific to crypto. Um, and I think that typology reports on crypto is a very um, helpful tool to just understand how can you misuse a Bitcoin ATM toward, you know, towards this? How can you misuse um, uh, crypto arbitrage or regulatory arbitrage between countries to achieve kind of a, a, a nefarious or, or uh, criminal activity? And so um, uh, I think there's a lot of education that needs to be had also with law enforcement. Uh, and how to investigate them uh, or crypto crimes specifically, that goes back to kind of trainings, the need to, um, to train investigators and law enforcement officials on, on what they're looking for. What are they even seeing? If you don't know what questions to ask, you know, you may, not, you may be missing things right under your nose. Um, and so I think adding modules that are focusing on crypto typologies globally to the, the general trainings that we already see happening for law enforcement is something that's really critical. Um, and then investigations, you know, just understanding where to begin a crypto investigation, understanding what dark markets are, understanding the different players in dark markets um, and how money is moved, understanding how to conduct a forensic crypto investigation um, and, and how to glean information from a blockchain to aid your investigation is very, very important. And I don't think that that's something that 
you know, many, many investigation units or, or law enforcement agencies right now are equipped to do, but of course some are, right? So, um, and, and kudos to those who are. Right. Leah, thank you so much for joining us today. I think, you know, I found it personally enriching and I think I've learned quite a, uh, a few new things today. Uh, so thanks, thanks for being here with us. Thank you for inviting me and, and good luck with everything you're doing. Thanks. Listeners, uh, join us again next Friday for the next edition of Fridays with Fintlet. Uh, this is Shirish signing out.